the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. How do we relate to or interact with the natural world around us? Beyond the question of environmentalism or conservation, there are real questions arising from our warming climate about the ways in which humanity coexists with or has a negative impact on the species, both plant and animal, that we are inextricably connected with. Today, we're going to talk with the author of a book that takes a look at the relationship between humanity and nature. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. So if you go outside and you take a walk here in southeast Michigan, what do you see? Buildings, concrete, slabs, paved roads. Of course, there are still trees and forests here in Michigan, but for many of the various animals and plants that once resided on these lands, so much of their world, of the ecosystem they depend on, is now gone. The extinction of various animal and plant species because of the impact of human existence now affects all parts of land and sea. And it's what scientists call the age of the Anthropocene, our age. Maybe, as has always been true, humans are intimately linked with the natural parts of our world. But because of our globalized industrial systems, we're now responsible for what happens to various species of plants and animals and ecosystems of natural life that exist near and sometimes relatively far from densely populated areas. And that's a really daunting fact. As species die off, seawaters rise, air is polluted, and crops dry out, many human populations and non-human species demand our attention and care to remain alive in a way that's never been true before. What do we do about this? How can we be good stewards of the land, of animals, and of people who live in areas that are susceptible to climatic disasters? And in even simpler terms, what's the best way to enjoy our natural lands and the creatures nearby? These are really hard, sometimes overwhelming questions that are mediated through our human politics and our culture. And in the book Rooted, Lyanda Lynn Hopped discusses some of the challenges and explores how to live more closely aligned with the natural world. Lyanda Lynn Hopped joins us now to talk about her book and the ways she thinks we ought to interact a little more friendlier, I guess, with 
the natural world around us. Lianda Hop, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. I'm delighted to be here. So I want to start with you talking about your interest in nature and the interrelationship between humans and nature and where that comes from. What, what, what makes this such a passionate issue for you? You know, I think that it's really difficult sometimes to say or articulate where our passions come from. You know, my dad's a stonemason and has only always had an affinity for that. And I think that's something I wouldn't have. So I think there's something that's maybe inborn, that maybe arises from our influences with others and the pathways we take in life. But I can honestly trace this interest in myself to my early childhood. Um, and I want to apologize at 6 a.m. in Seattle. <laughs> I just saw my first cup of coffee. So <laughs> I'm going to just get my voice going here. Okay. Um, I was raised Catholic when I was young, and I lived in a suburb. I live in Seattle now, but um, I was in a suburb outside of Seattle growing up, and there was a canyon in my backyard that I love to explore. I've, I've always been kind of a quirky, introverted kid who likes to write and draw and be alone. Um, I love my friends, too, but I always enjoyed some solitude to refresh. And uh, so there was that aspect of my life alongside the the Catholic education part of my life. And there are two things that drew me about that. One is that we would gather every week in kind of relative silence where no matter what was going on and who was saying what, the you know, in terms of the liturgy, you could sit there in kind of your own quiet world and mm. have this hour where there's nothing to do but contemplate. And so when I went to Sunday school or uh, CCD, as it was called, I was blessed with these instructors who were obsessed with the saints. And I found in the lives of these extraordinary people, this idea that there's an alternate way to live. You know, you don't get to be a saint by being normal, right? (laughs) These are people (laughs) that are living at the fringes, not just from our perspective in the modern time, but in their own time. Um, So people like uh, Francis of Assisi, Julian of Norwich, Hildegard of Bingen in the 1100s, this Rhenish mystic who was an herbalist, a pharmacist, a an artist, um, but who had this idea of the sacred and divine that had all to do with the greening of the earth. For her, um, what we sought in our relationship with, with the world was what she called veridita, mm-hmm. which meant the greening finger of the divine. So the divine um, is absolutely intertwined with this uh, lush health of the earth. And Hildegard said, I think Hildegard would be, we, we're reclaiming this word witch sort of in our mo- modern culture as people who understand our relationship with earth, earth the healing dimension of that relationship. Um, so she was very much that person, and she just referred to people who were out of touch with that greening mm. as shriveled and wilted and saw it as one of our core um, the core aspects of, of our maturing as, as in the fullness of, of human being to come in touch with that greenness. So I want to say at the top, I, I, I use uh, words like spirituality 
very expansively, you know, to mean those parts of our, our psyche that cannot be quantified by the usual human measures, right? Imagination, creativity, subjective response to beauty, sense of personal meaning. Um, so I don't want to link it to any any religion at all or, the, or, or that that it has anything to do with religion. And, um, but some of these people who taught us these things were based in a very kind of edgy way mm-hmm. in, um, in religion and pastimes, which was one of the only ways that they had to be educated and, and speak out. So, so I want to say uh, spirit is very expansive. I don't want to alienate any of our readers in that way. But sure. so that happened from, from the time I was very young. Um, I set up my own little sanctuary at, at the, in the canyon in the back of my backyard. I called it Frog Church, <laughs> <laughs> where I would gather the frogs for my little, you know, congregation. <laughs> Um, so, so I, I, in some ways, I just want to say I come come by it honestly. My parents, uh, my parents, really supported my interest in just watching the birds in the backyard. They got us the field guide even before birding was a word, and um, so I just grew up in that kind of crossover, sitting in nature within nature, uh, everyday nature, observing it, learning the birds, and then having this kind of influence of these these humans who were relating to nature from, you know, over a thousand years ago in these real wild ways. Mm. So. So, so I imagine that given that early experience and then growing up, uh, huh? at some point you, you must bump up against a real disappointment, I guess, or a, a, a real set of concerns about the ways in which we, especially here in this country, but but increasingly in other places around the planet as well, don't have much appreciation for these things that were so interesting to you and and that you 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 found so important that that the world as we've organized it around us really dismisses an awful lot of what you loved and and what you were interested in. Can you talk about what that experience was like? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I confronted growing up was the, uh, you know, you've probably read Richard Powers' book, The Overstory, and he really sort of very lightly fictionalizes Sequoia Summer, that summer of activism around uh, the remaining old growth forest. And that's my home bioregion, right? I'm in the Cascadian bioregion here in the Pacific Northwest. And I was a young activist in those days and was really uh, disheartened by the way that the natural world is commodified into board feet of lumber here in the uh, tropical rainforest because it's something that we in the United States don't have that much connection with the way that we found the way that it was expressed to us to sort of care about that was that we could find medicine there that would help humans. And so I thought, wow, we're we're reducing this forest to a commodified world to the extent that it can help us. (laughs) And even that didn't work. You know, we see that we saw that the, uh, the destruction was continuing apace. And another thing that, really sort of disheartened me was 
after college, I, uh, or was it during college, I ran away to Japan. I lived in Kyoto for a year and, and studied deeply the uh, relationship to nature in Japan, where I don't want to um, generalize for the culture there, but there's a deep influence from the ancient worldview in Japan, Shintoism, where animism, this sort of everyday sense that everything in the natural world has a sense of inspiritedness, has a sense of consciousness, even though it's nothing like uh, what humans can experience. You know, there's no nervous system, there's no eyeballs. (laughs) Still, we have this sense that there's a way of being in the world that is appropriate to a stone, to a tree. And this is long before Suzanne Simard's work and, and the work of, you know, mycorrhiza showing us how intertwined everything is. Um, there was a deep sensibility, thousands of years old. And so when I went from Japan to graduate school here, and I remember talking to my advisor, because that sense of, of um, that sense of non-duality is so essential to coming into a, a, a deep relationship, personal relationship with nature, and founding and understanding that's going to help us move forward. So when I got to graduate school, I was studying environmental ethics and philosophy of ecology, and I remember talking early on to my professor, to my advisor, and saying, "You know, one thing I." One of the things I studied in Japan is that we have the capacity to be, you know, both one and individual that we recognize sort of the parameters of our skin as flimsy and interpermeable as they might be, semi-permeable, um, that we are, we are one and maybe that stone across from this is one. Mm-hmm. But in, in, um, there's a Buddhist maxim that you can be, there's one and two, one and two, and then both one and two. So we're kind of dissolving that duality. And I will never forget what my professor said to me. He he looked at me and said, oh, that's very charming, but you know that has no place here. Hmm. That has no place here. And this was in a a department of um, ecology, philosophy of ecology. And so I I remember just feeling this deep... uh, hardness in my heart <laughs> when he said that and thought, all right, I'm going to have to find some workarounds for this. <laughs> wow. Wow. Okay. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Lyanda Hopped about her book Rooted and about the ways in which we relate to the world around us, the natural world around us. We want to hear from you during this conversation as well. How often do you consider climate change and the widespread extinction of animal species these days? Does it overwhelm you? Does it make you feel sad or powerless? And call and tell us what the ways are that you connect or would like to connect more with nature. Do you make sure that you go for walks or visit parks or connect? Do you live in a way that minimizes the impact that you have on the natural world? Call and tell us what things you do to make sure that you're respecting the other species that also occupy our space. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back 
with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WBUT, I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest this hour is Lyanda Lynn Hopped. She's the author of the new book, Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. And we're having a conversation about the ways in which we as humans, human beings, interact with the natural world. We all know that we have a profound impact on other species, other plants, other animals here on uh, on our planet. But what is the right way for us to interact with those things? And how do we derive more joy, more celebration, I guess, from that relationship? Are there ways that we can engage more meaningfully with the natural world around us? We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is always the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. Uh, you can also go to Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there, and we can work you into the conversation that way. Call and tell us what you make of the interaction between humans and other species uh, on the planet. Uh, also give us a call and tell us whether you're somebody who – makes an effort to change the impact that you might have on the natural world? Are you somebody who's thinking about conservation, who's thinking about a smaller footprint for yourself that uh, that doesn't have such a profound effect on all of the other species that we share this space with? Uh, we're going to start today with Kelly on the east side. Kelly, welcome to the program. Hey, hi, Stephen. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm good. I actually, as a child of the 80s and teenager of the 90s, I got the message. Like, I heard it. And I grew up recycling and doing all those things. And as a person that lives in the cities, I've always tried to be a conscious city person who can't afford solar panels or can't afford wind power for her home. But, like, I grow, I have a garden that grows my own food, mm. and I compost in my backyard, and I was a very avid recycler. And part of the reason I moved back to Michigan as an adult was to be closer to our fresh water supply. Mm. Because I do believe that we have climate change coming down the road in 30 years, and all the reports I've read have said that the American Midwest is going to be one of the safest places to live because of the water and because of our forestry system. Sure, sure. Yeah, but um, so I'm cautiously optimistic, and I do my best to try and minimize my footprint. But I also, like I said, used to recycle. Like, I stopped recycling when I got disheartened because I heard China hadn't been recycling all mm -hmm. these years, and mm -hmm. all of our programs weren't working. And so I'm living in, you know, that gray space of trying to do what's right, <laughs> trying to live what's right. 
but not seeing the effort come from the people that need it to come from. I called last week about the Warren plant or the FCA plant sure. on Mac yeah. and those problems. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Kelly, I really, I really love the, the, the call and, and the things you're sharing. And I think it, it represents this, uh, this kind of tension that uh, many of us live with trying to think of the ways in which we, uh, we interact with, with the natural world and, and, and how we minimize the, the damage, I guess, that our lives do to it. Uh, Lyanda Hopped, I wonder what your reaction is to, to what Kelly's talking about. Yeah, Kelly, I really appreciate what you're saying, that simultaneously um, seeking to do what's right and then feeling a kind of ennui when you see that the world is not responding. And one of the things that I offer in this book is, is sort of a set of, of way markers and fortification and practices that we can use to ground ourselves in the natural world to sort of reignite our sense of reciprocity and love. And I think that that's so important to keep, um, not that we're drawing from the world, you know, we're making the world into another commodity by saying, oh, you know, we can sort of spend time in nature and that's like therapy or that's like taking a pill. <laughs> it's more like just, you know, it, it it, we are entering into a circle of reciprocity when we find ways to connect and we can talk about specifically about some of those ways today. And I think that those are not isolated. What they lead to is love. You know, attention needs to love. And we all act in the ways that none of us can do everything right. It's so daunting. There's so much going on. We all have our litany of sadnesses and heartbreaks when we see what's going on in the world. But when we act from a sense of connectedness, when we act um, from that sense of love, I think we can bring our individual gifts to the world. None of us has to do everything, but we all have something that calls to us and we can, can bring that forth. Mm-hmm. And so I see that Kelly's acting in, in, you know, protection, finding the place where, you know, it, it's, it's going to be cleaner. It might be better longer. Um, I absolutely understand sometimes when we're doing things like recycling, it seems like we're just, you know, tilting at windmills, right? <laughs> um, but one of the things, one of my perspectives on that, I, I talk about this with my friends a lot, does it really matter if we are at the restaurant and they say, do you want the plastic straw? And we say no. You know, <laughs> with all the enormity of the problems, does that matter? And, you know, one of the things that, that I think about a lot is, you know, Maybe it's it's just going to make so little difference as to be almost meaningless. But when we act from what we know is right anyway, you know, maybe it doesn't matter, but we still know that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And so we, we bring ourselves in congru- con- congruousness. Okay, I'm not using the right word here. Um, <laughs> in, to congruity with what we know is is the right thing to do. And I quote, a, um, I quote this woman who lived in the 1300s, Julianne of Norwich, and a lot of us know her phrase, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. One of the things she says in that wider sort of visitation um, vision that she had is the idea that well and woe, as she calls it, are intertwined. They are both aspects of one love. And so it's not so much we do things for an end. Sometimes we don't know what the end will be right now, 
people always ask me if I have hope, and I think, well, it depends on what you mean by hope. <laughs> Do I think that we are going to overcome this crisis and that wor- world is going to turn uh, return to a flourishing green and desert and coral reef, you know, healthy place? I do not know. But does it mean that we don't act both personally and collectively? It doesn't. Hope means that we act in the way um, that makes the most sense, that that we act from love without attachment to a specific outcome, you know? So I just think we're called to to, I mean, I, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm perfect in this at all. I fail a thousand times today, to, a day to do both small and large things. But just try to stay rooted in that sense of, okay, let, let go of an objectified outcome, which is part of you know what our overculture asks, asks us to quantify to have certainty. But we don't have that, and so we still act from love. Mm. You know? I mean, one of the things that that I think is kind of key is is finding that way, uh, as you point out, to act uh, in a way that uh, that leans into joy, right? That, yes. that that the first way to try to I think, I think appreciate the the value of the natural world and the impact that we have on it is finding ways to be able to enjoy the outdoors. And we do that as children, of course, um, but but we lose it often as as we get older. And so I think we find ourselves in worlds that are really distant from that. And maybe the way back, the first way back, is, is through that joy. I absolutely agree. And that's one of the things, while, while in this book I don't want to downplay the difficulty of what's happening, I do offer a lot of what I call fortification and way markers for reconnection because I think um, we find that this is kind of funny, Stephen, you know, where there's all of this new science, beautiful, humbling science coming out, showing how deeply intertwined our health is with time in the natural world. We're learning about the communication and the the forms of tree consciousness and their deep intertwining with the uh, mycelia of the, you know, mushrooms are the fruiting body of fungus, but the main life of fungus is occurring in these miles and miles of thread-like mycelia under the ground that feed the trees and are fed by trees in the return in return and connect the trees to one another and that, and beyond. And so it's just this beautiful sense of intertwining that, while we're coming to understand this and we're coming to understand the way that time and nature affects our health, when I read this new science and it's being heralded as this, you know, discovery, rightly, it's so beautiful. Mm. But part of me thinks, you know, we already knew this. We didn't know the specifics. We didn't know that just the poetic beauty that the deep science can show us where exactly in our neurological systems and our brains that um, this is at work. You know, and that's beautiful and a poetry in itself. But across times and cultures, for thousands of years, um, indigenous earth-based voices, poets, musicians, artists, children, saints, have been <laughs> proclaiming this interconnection. And it's so it's something that's innately accessible to our understanding. You know? Yeah. 
So I think we need to remember that. But some of the things that, that we can do are, I'll just give one of the examples from my book is, and I, I know it's really cold where you are. <laughs> <laughs> it's only, it's in the 40s here in Seattle, so we need to be safe and have common sense and think about the seasons in this. But sometimes when we take our shoe, shoes off, and walk barefoot on um, on the earth. It's it's a joyful sense of reconnection. We have so many nerve endings <laughs> in our feet, more than we have in our hands, mm-hmm. and we have this intricate movement to our feet that is limited by socks. Even when you put on socks, it holds your toes together. And then when we put on shoes, we really can't feel the earth, and our feet are overprotected. So their muscles and tendons that have this freedom of movement and awareness of what's beneath them is blindfolded. So when we take our shoes off and walk for even a short time or just place our feet upon the earth, this, um, these nerve endings are activated. We know that they have to do um, with the way that we um, absorb information in the rest of our bodies and our minds. And so we shed this pretense of separation. We put our feet on the ground. We come into this way of knowing, you know, oh, it's soft. Oh, it's warm. Oh, it's prickly. Um, and then it also brings joy. I had, I was with a group of elders doing a, a conference about connection with nature. And I encouraged them at the break to go out into just really grassy place that surrounded their their beautiful retreat center, and they just were all amazing. They said, no, my feet are ugly, my feet are smelly. And I said, all right, all of our feet are ugly, all of our feet are smelly. <laughs> Let's just take our shoes off together. And when they came in after the break, I was so astounded. I, I imagined that everyone would have their shoes back on and be a little grumpy. But instead, they were carrying their shoes. These are people in their 80s, um, possibly some of them their early 90s. And they were laughing <laughs> laughing. So when you say joy, I just think, wow, these, we did these things as children. We stopped because of societal norms, but we don't have to. We can reconnect in these beautiful ways. Wow. Wow. Uh, again, Kelly, really appreciate the call uh, and, and your comments. Okay, let's go to Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, good morning. Go ahead. Um, I, I, I'm just going to bullet point this real quick. Uh, I have four doorways that are filters for me developing my thinking. And one is uh, anthropology that you learn in sociology class, anthropology that uh, I call political anthropology, theistic anthropology. And within the last year, I have consciously added environmental anthropology. Hmm. Uh, I, I don't know whether those are technical terms, but they speak to me on what is it to be human and all of these things that come at us. Hmm. And one of the biggest things was I, uh, in in the COVID time, I joined the Sierra Club to make phone calls, and I learned so much from the Sierra Club. Uh, okay, as far as my, my footprint, my building has given up on any conscious, uh, uh, an apartment building, on any conscious uh, recycling. But I take my one bag out a week. <laughs> I, I have stopped buying tea bags and buy loose tea, and I've taken a stand on the straws. And I, whether it makes a big difference or not, the, the best thing I think happens is I get ridiculed. People will say, oh, that's useless. Why do you bother? How silly of you. Mm. And I, I enjoy 
being ridiculed. <laughs> right. Dennis, no, that's, that's great. I, I, I love that story because I can just kind of picture you doing these things and people saying, why are you bothering with that? Uh, but, but, I mean, I think that's it, it does, again, raise that question about what each of us can do individually and whether it matters. I mean, I don't know that it's just external questions that we get about about those things. I think there's some internal questions too about how much it matters. And I think that's a separate question from whether we whether we reap any sort of benefit personally from it. I mean, we were talking about joy just now, which is about our own sense of self and satisfaction. There's a separate question, I think, about whether what we're doing has an impact on on you know the the, the broader the broader concerns here, which is that uh, human human beings have too much influence and impact over over all of the things the other things on the planet. I love Dennis's question and ways of being. I think it's it's really beautiful. I'm glad he has a sense of humor about it. Dennis, one of the things I love that you said was. Um, that people laugh at you and you just don't care or you enjoy being <laughs> laughed at. And, you know, I think that is, that's one of the things in my book that I discuss. It's sort of one of the tenets is that it's eccentricity is that what we do is going to look weird to the people. We live in this over-cultural story where, you know, we, we're sensible. We do these things. We, you know, we, we know that there's climate crisis, but we probably can't really do anything. And I just think, okay, this is not working. This has not been working for a very, very long time. Our commodification of nature has, has not been working. Our, um, our 50 simple things we can do to save the earth aren't working. Um, we are going to have to create a new story. We're going to have to act from the edges. And, and one of the things that I want to encourage here is you know, we're, I mean, we're talking about recycling and we're talking about, um, you know, yeah, we don't use the straws. We don't do as much laundry, whatever. Um, all of these things are really important. I believe they're important because they set in us a mindset that we, that no matter what the outcome, we do what we know in our hearts to be right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are right. But we are also at a time we have gone beyond the 50 simple things that we can do to save the earth. There are 10,000 impossible things that we have to do in order for things to be turned around. Right. And I think that we're going to need to be, to go beyond those lists that we've been spoon fed of, you know, you know, recycle, decrease single use plastics. Do, and all of those things are important. We should be doing all of those things, but also, um, when I talk in this book about things we can do to connect to the earth, to cultivate our love, to listen for what our place is, um, you know, maybe going barefoot, wandering in the world, um, lying on the ground and listening to the voice, to the non-human voices, uh, you know, stepping out of that o- overculture to, to say, okay, what is, what is my gift and how can I bring it outside of these 50 simple things. So I'll give you an example. Um, we all know Rachel Carson, right? Mm-hmm. She wrote um, she wrote a trilogy of the sea that very few people know about. We know her for her book, Silent Spring. Mm-hmm. And she had a dear friend, Dorothy, and she was talking about writing Silent Spring, which 
at the time was titled, um, I can't remember, but Dorothy just called it the Poisons Book. That's what the two of them (laughs) referred to it. It's got a very unattractive title. And Dorothy asked her beloved friend, Rachel, she said, why must you write this? You know, it's not beautiful. It's not what people expect from you. And Rachel said, you know, I have held the the birds in my hand that have affected that been have been affected by D, um, DDT. I held a dead thrush in my hand, and she said, I could not go on knowing what I know without bringing my gift to help. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of my message is, is when we engage in these practices of connection, we go beyond the list of things we're spoon-fed that we could do and investigate what is our personal gift. For Rachel, it was writing. It was not picking up a megaphone and going into the square and calling a rally. That was, she was very shy. That was not her. It was not, um, it was not initially being invested in policy change. It was, she's a writer. She picked up her pen and wrote something that thousands of people could read. We are not all writers. But we have um, gifts that are unique to our own being. So my feeling is that we, I, in listening to the earth, in these practices of connection, I think we can listen more closely, kind of tilt our heads and think, okay, what is the earth asking of me? And what is my gift that will allow me to bring it forth? So I can't prescribe what that would be for each person. But I think in these practices of connection, we can come to listen to what we individually love, what we're called to act on, and we know and cultivate our own gifts and find how we can bring those together. That's what we're, we're going to need, that deeper involvement. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this really wonderful conversation with Lyandalyn Hopped. And with you, the listeners, about how we interact with the world around us. Uh, John on the east side, Gloria in southwest Detroit. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is always the number here. We've also got a number of social media comments to inject into the conversation. Uh, You can always leave those at Facebook or at Twitter. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour with Lyandalyn Hopped. She is the author of a new book, Rooted, Life at the Crossroads of Science, Nature, and Spirit. We're talking about the different ways that uh, we all interact with the natural world around us, the amount of influence or impact we have on that world, and how we might change the way that looks uh, in our lives. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media 
and put your comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. I do want to read some of our social media comments. We've gotten quite a few. Big Neo says, give a hoot, don't pollute. That's one of the PSAs from my childhood. He's also speaking uh, to someone who's who's got that same memory. I remember those as well. Uh, he says it's still engraved in his brain. He never throws trash on the road while out. He holds on to it until he can find a trash can. He also lives as closely as possible to his job to cut back on car emissions. Uh, RZS on Twitter says, uh, I do my part to recycle, garden, be an activist, and write to Congress. But somehow I feel... It's not enough. How significant uh, of a difference will what I do be as an individual? I wonder all the time. Chase on Twitter says, in the West, we're going to realize our interconnectedness as a collective when it's too late, when the earth is responding to our carelessness and our resource orientation will become more intense and also racialized as we compete for limited resources. Uh, Let's go next to Gloria in southwest Detroit. Gloria, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, Gloria. Um, Yes, good morning, and thank you to your guests and for this program. This is very dear to my heart, and as I listened, um, all of this has been uh, talked about, but just to reinforce the incredible resource we have in the indigenous communities Mm -hmm. and their connection to to earth and to nature Mm -hmm. and their, their reverence, they are another form of spirituality, and I happen to also be a Catholic, uh, member of the Catholic tradition, so I appreciate her referring to those, the spirituality of so many there. But the other thing I want to mention is something that fascinates me, and I've been studying on my own, is biomimicry, which is the emulation of nature, going to nature to help find out and learn to make the connections. And you don't have to be a scholar. You can just go, as she said, to walk on the earth, to grow your garden, whatever it is, and to see nature as teacher, model, mentor, asking questions. So like, how does nature recycle? How does nature save resources, etc.? And just to help us to be part of this immense universe, we just sent a great machine up in the, in, the, in the universe called the web, and it's fascinating what it's going to find out for us, but it's going to remem- remind us that we're made of stardust, and that we're all kin, hmm. K-I-N. So lastly, she mentioned the mycelia underneath the forest. We as humans can be the mycelia in the planet and be for the good of all. And there are environmental and I can talk about that for an hour, but I don't have time. <laughs> uh, the, the mycelia, uh, the, I'm sorry, biomimicry, there is curriculum already that helps the teachers not only reconnect with nature, but teach social economics, math, it's all connected. So yeah. I'm saying a lot, and hopefully it's connected in your mind. So thank you for <laughs> Gloria, in Thank I, you. I really appreciate the call. Uh, I, I have to say I've not heard that term before, biomimicry. Uh, Lion, I wonder how familiar that is to you. Yeah, um, it, it, it is familiar. One of the things I wanted to grasp on that um, to – what Gloria said, so many things. Gloria could come on here and talk for an hour with us. Um, <laughs> one of the things I want to grasp on that she said was the, the word kin. Mm-hmm. And what we are, you know, one of the main things we're exploring now is, or, or, or encouraging, is this idea that we are all um, 
no matter what our nervous system looks like, no matter what our brain looks like, that we, along with the, the trees, the rivers, all beings, are not part of a, it's not humans and then the rest of the world, <laughs> or even humans and the not, we used to use this phrase um, in eco-philosophy, the human and the non-human. And that broke down pretty quickly, right? Because we are calling humans the thing and everything else non. <laughs> so we, we said human and the other than human world. And one of the phrases that Dave Abram coined is um, the more than human world, which I think is really evocative. And what it invites us into is this sensibility that we are all so deeply connected that all our, and um, Gloria mentioned, um, indigenous cultures. And I don't want it to suggest that every um, culture has the exact same set of beliefs at all. But there is a through line in so many indigenous cultures that we are all relations, that we are all brothers and sisters. And it's not just talking about humans. It's talking about humans with deer and ravens and western red cedars here where I live and the waters of the rivers. And so I think when we sort of we can kind of delimit our idea that everything that has consciousness has to look like human consciousness, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And think about consciousness in this just much broader um, way that there's just an infinity of an intelligence that we're walking, intelligences that we're walking within every time we leave our doorstep and we see the commonest bird, a rare bird, a a beautiful ancient old tree or a dandelion that's finding its crack in the sidewalk. When we walk through the world and realize that all of these things are our relationship in our, our relations in terms of us being living um, rooted beings on the same planet, it invites us into this just kind of love that makes it almost impossible to treat the world as a commodity. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Again, Gloria, I really love the call uh, and the comments. Um, let's go to Donna in Highland Park. Donna, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks. Uh, I feel similar to Gloria. This is so much a part of me. Uh, as a little girl, I've loved animals. My, I used to bring in the frogs from the pond where I lived, and my dad would take out the bullets out of the frog from the neighbor boys. Um, <laughs> oh, I mean, no. I even regret, hated having to dissect a frog in school. I mean, I <laughs> I hate all killing, and it's all speciesism. It's like racism. It's all, you know, humans, or especially white humans, are superior race and can do whatever they want to other humans and other animals. Mm -hmm. And I've been involved with environmental groups and I mean, animal rights groups ever since, and I'm 70 years old now. Mm -hmm. And so much information is available to people just to Google. Um, for example, I just Googled, um, you know, we, we use over a million animals in U.S. research, very torturous experiments, and especially they want more for the COVID issue. And primates, um, over... Uh, uh, 60 or 70,000 monkeys in the United States labs. And it, you can find out how they're being tortured. Just Google it. Mm. And, for example, the Kenya Airways that import monkeys from 
spontaneous, I don't know how to pronounce it, in the Indian Ocean Island to bring to the United States. They had a crash, and a lot of the monkeys got loose. Kenya Airlines decided not to import any more primates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And another example, um, the Canadian forest, old growth forest is being destroyed and made into toilet paper, probably mm-hmm. Cottonelle or one of those very white bleached brands. Uh, you can buy um, toilet paper made out of other things um, like bamboo, which is yeah. you yeah. know sustainable. And Donna, I really appreciate the call and those those examples. I don't mean to cut you off, but we're uh, we're going to run out of time. I I, I do want to talk about um, you know the the. the the interaction with other animal species that you that you raise, and I think that's something that we didn't talk a whole lot about here. But um, that's one of the things that that you write about in this in this book, Lyanda, is mm-hmm. is the ways in which that's been a big part of your passion as well. Absolutely, Donna. I appreciate so much everything you say, and it also kind of goes back to what Gloria was saying about kinship. We were talking about the more that we observe in our everyday lives and understand uh, other uh, other than human creatures, I think the less that we are able to objectify them. And we have to continue to question that in our, question these activities in our science. And um, one of the things that I, I, I did for my previous book, Mozart's Starling, was I, uh, there was a starling that was going to be you know, killed and thrown mm-hmm. out of a local park because they're non-native species and so they're not protected. And I was writing uh, this book and I thought, well, I'm just going to grab that little chick for research. And so I raised this really hated in our uh, country because it's a non-native species and super, super common bird in my house. And I know that starlings are um, good mimics and I know that they are also um, super intelligent and can become tame. So I expected all those things. But one one of the things that I learned was that in living in our household, this bird who we called Carmen would um, anticipate the sound. So she became a really good, you know, mimicker. She could mimic our voice, music, other bird songs, sounds of our sounds of our household. Mm. But I started to learn that she was anticipating what was going to come next. So if I would close the microwave door. But before I press the button, she'd go beep, beep, beep. <laughs> or if I poured, co- you know, the coffee beans into the coffee grinder. But before I started the grinder, she'd go. <laughs> so she was sitting there listening constantly yes. for what was going to come next. And this is something that is very little reported in the scientific literature. We know they're good mimics, but this anticipatory level yeah. is 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 not known and i thought oh my my starling is so this starling is so smart but i thought well that's silly of course it's not just her it's all the starlings this beautiful unique form of intelligence but it is unique to starling and all animals maybe think more and more broadly have this unique way of being in this world what i call an infinity of animal intelligences that we will only in our life in infinite lifetime scrapes the surface of. And so what that invites us into is this is a deep, humbling yes. respect yes. for the natural world in which we can have to less and less commodify yeah. the yeah. other creatures that share our planet and our lives. Right. Oh, what a wonderful way to end such a wonderful conversation. Lyanda Lynn Hopped, it was really great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining oh, us. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. 
That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow. I'll be here, and I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station.